Hello. I hope you enjoy this recording and consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, my talks are offered entirely without charge and supported by donations only. Please feel invited to stop by dharmapunksnyc.com, that's spelled with an X, to check out a chapter from my book, Unsubscribe. And thank you. New talk this week. Every week they're new, but sometimes I use talks I've given in the past and sort of spend a little time, dress it up, make it a little bit more fresh. But sometimes I'll just do a talk entirely from scratch because it's on a subject I'm interested in. So, And then I get really neurotic in my preparation. It'll work a long time to make it. I've never understood, I was saying this the other night, I don't understand why people, when they go to parties and they bring something, you know, food, and you taste it and it tastes pretty good, and you go, oh, this, this tastes great. And they go, oh, that was nothing. That's so easy. All you got to do is, you know, and you're like, I don't care. One, you know. <laughs> but two, why do you got to, why do you got to make, what is the emotional need to make things seem effortless? I think if you put some love and effort into it, you know, so you should say, oh yeah, that was really hard. I'm glad you noticed it. That really... That really fucked my schedule. <laughs> I was supposed to say, the other thing I really don't like is when you... This has nothing to do with the talk, by the way. When you're... You come back from traveling, you know, Mexico or something, and you run into somebody who's been to the same place. And then, for some reason, people feel the need to go... Well, did you go to Punta del Cana? Yes. Did you go to Playa del Ruiz? Yeah. Did you go to this? Did you go to that? Yeah. And they wait until you, they get to the one place you've never been to, and they go, oh, that's the best. <laughs> well, fuck you. You could, have, you could have fucking, with some of the places we shared together and talk about how nice it was, but no, you've got to get to the one place. Oh, they make the best, you know, tacos ever there. Anyway, I don't know why I'm like going off on this. Tonight's talk is about being able to discern other people's underlying emotional states and uh, why it's so important and how to develop that skill. In the Kavata Sutta, the Buddha says when one has achieved a mind that is refined and at a higher level of awareness, one can discern the mind states of other people. And in the core sutta of the entire dharma, the satipatthana, one of the core suttas, the Buddha says, one should live observing the inner states of oneself and of others. So, observing the inner states of oneself and others, knowing if a mind is lustful, averse, delusional, aware, distracted, agitated, liberated, and so forth. So this might sound odd, but actually there's a lot of contemporary psychology posits almost an identical understanding that one of the most important skills that an adult mind 
develops is the ability to not just react to what people say and what they do, but to dig deeper and to try to understand the underlying mind, intentions, motivations, moods that are motivating people's behaviors or in some way influencing or on the other hand, very often as we'll see, people's underlying moods and emotional states and uh, intentions can be very uh, divergent from what they are expressing. People can all the time express that they would like to do things or that they will do things that they actually emotionally have no intention on doing whatsoever. So this capability is known as mentalization. To mentalize means to discern what's going on in other people's minds, what their underlying intent is. And this was, of course, essential in the course of human evolution where we lived in hunter-gatherer collectives. You'd spend the bulk of your life in a small group of about eight to ten adults, maybe four to six children, and you roam about in these very small, limited groups. And once in a while, you would uh, come into contact with members of another group. It was essential, it was vital that you be able to quickly discern whether that person was belligerent or benign, collaborative or competitive, whether that person was frightened or aggressive. And a vital skill for the bulk of human history was to be able to discern what was motivating somebody's, what's present internally in somebody's mind. So, for example, if you were out in the wild and you were foraging for food and berries and you stumbled upon another member of another clan, that member could appear very, very aggressive. And if you responded that way, you might immediately get into a, a fight for one's life. But suppose you were capable of mentalization and you saw that while this person was presenting as aggressive, in fact, their eyes, their twitches, their movements, the, the way they were shifting attention, their body language was signaling, in fact, they were terrified. Well, then it would change the way you would respond entirely. You wouldn't necessarily become aggressive. You might back off and tell them you're not going to attack them, that they're okay, and very quickly you de-escalate the interaction. But if you simply went by what people present, we can get in a lot of trouble. In life, people can present consciously with their left brains. They can present that they're confident, that they are capable, everything's going to be okay, that they're in, they're definitely in for being a friend or in a relationship. When in fact, though, emotionally, if you learn to read people's what they call in poker their tells, their emotional giveaways, you can discern that in fact. Very often, people have entirely incompatible emotional states from what they are telling and presenting to other people. We like to believe that when people don't live up to their word or change their mind or suddenly back out of arrangements, it's because they consciously knew all along that they were going to do so. But in fact, 
human beings all have bilateral brains. We each have a left and a right brain. In our lives, for much of uh, the course of our adult lives, it's very, very possible, if not frequent, where we agree to things using the language structures of our left brain and the goal-seeking behaviors of the left brain that the right brain is terrified of doing. You can get in, to give you a concrete example, if you've ever procrastinated in your life doing something that you thought was important to do, but stalled and failed to uh, get it done, that's because your left hemisphere wanted to do something that your right hemisphere associated with rejection, abandonment, or a previous emotional wound. So if you've ever wanted to be confident and had a panic attack, that's a classic example of when one side of the bilateral brain was interested in something that the right brain was not capable of doing. The right brain is associative. It's expectant, dependent on experience. If something in the past that was similar was scary, your right brain will always react with fear and avoidance towards it until you take the time to give it the corrective emotional experience. So the ability to mentalize is the skill of not always going by what people want you to believe or present to you and with their words, but to be able to pick up the signs are being signaled unconsciously by them that give away their concerns, their fears, their doubts, their anxieties, this is not only useful in de deciding who you're going to live with, who you're going to work with, it's kind of vital when it comes to deciding who you're going to be in a relationship with, right? Because people all the time come across as enthusiastic and present at the beginning, but very often they're not capable of sustaining the degree of intimacy and attention and love and care that they initially present themselves. So mentalization is a really valuable skill, to say the least. It also underlies social intelligence. If you can't mentalize, you can't discern when people are being ironic and being sincere, because ir irony and sincerity both use the exact same words. So you go through a difficult meeting, and then afterwards somebody who was there says, well, that was a great time. Now, hopefully, even though their words indicate that they thought that was fun, you know through mentalization by some subtle shifts in their tone of voice, a wink, a, a, a subtle emotional expression, something in their body language gives away that they're being sarcastic, that they had a terrible time. People who are high-spectrum uh, on the autism scale basically cannot mentalize. It's uh, very, very difficult for them to read any social cues. They go by what other people say because they don't have the uh, capacity to discern the underlying mind states. And to do that, it requires a circuit that involves some of both the lowest and the highest uh, brain regions. You have to have the um, uh, left prefrontal uh, cortex, which regulates emotions. You have to have the dorsal medial, which uh, allows for empathy. You have to have the, uh, I think, the uh, 
posterior cingulate, which uh, allows you to sustain attention and pause. And because uh, the difference between being hypervigilant, which is you know just being reactive and on guard and like anxious around people, is that's a truly emotional state. Mentalization is not an anxious state. It's a calm, reflective ability to integrate felt intuition that tells you something's off with what somebody's saying, and then to reflect on all the information you have, and then come to a sort of series of questions that will help you to discern for yourself what's really going on. So whereas hypervigilance is anxious, worried, reactive, mentalization is actually uh, engages all the engages both the right and left hemispheres because you have to be intuitive and reflective. You have to pause. You have to develop impulse control. You have to wait and see and develop some further inquiry. So the ability to mentalize is shaped very, very young in our lives. The degree that we can mentalize, read other people's underlying mind states, is determined when we're infants. And infants do what's called proximity-seeking and attention-seeking behaviors. We cry, we crawl towards a caregiver. We try to make ourselves be seen because that's the primary drive of a human being in infancy, not to get food or warmth, the core drive is to connect, to bond with an adult, because that's the sole way we survive. Infants without attachments do not survive very well. And not only do they not survive very well, infants without adult connections don't, are incapable of, of soothing their emotions. When a child cries or kicks and screams out of frustration or giggles and nobody's there, to look at the child and to mirror back the child's emotions, which is to express a similar emotion, uh, the child feels alone and will not be able to regulate those feelings. It will stu stay stuck in an activated, distressing state. So the child constantly sends out signals to be seen. And if the caregiver is present and emotionally available and not distressed themselves or agitated, the, the parent will do three things. One, they'll come closer, perhaps touch or hold the child. Two, they'll mirror, they'll reflect back the emotions that the infant is signaling. Like if the child's frightened, the mother will signal, oh, you're frightened. But then the third thing the parent does that's vital, and this is where mentalization comes in, is the parent will signal I'm okay. I know I just signaled that I was sad like you or I mirrored your emotion, but I'm not in your emotion. I'm okay. I'm feeling something different. So that capability of marking, which says internally, even though I can, I can smile when you're happy or look anxious when you're anxious or look sad when you're sad, I'm signaling to you as well that I'm okay, that everything's all right. You follow me? Marking is what Fanaghi, the guy who developed mentalization, said is the key contributor to the ability further on in life for a child to be able to read the emotions of other people. Because the child in that exchange learns that there's more to the mother or father 
than what they express externally. That they can express disappointment, but at the same time feel something, a sense of still love for the child. They can be frustrated with the child, but still love the child. That deeper level of meaning is made available to the child. So if the parent is distracted, depressed, if a parent is anxious or works too much, the parent won't be able to not only mirror, but mark that they're okay. And the child doesn't learn that people have interiority or mind states that might be entirely at variance with what they're showing to other people. When children grow up without that ability to discern other people's mind states, not only do they repetitively get involved in really bad relationships with people, not only are they easily taken advantage of, but people who don't mentalize cannot understand other people when they don't share the same feelings. They'll feel somehow that they're threatened or that their own feelings are nullified. So they'll get very upset when they encounter someone who is verbalizing or expressing a, a contrary opinion or state of being. Fortunately, it's not all down to the early childhood um, life. We also develop the skill to read other people's minds, as it were, when at dinner tables with our parents, our parents talk about you know, what's going on in their life, and they might verbalize that there's a lot of stressors in their life, but they also will verbalize that they're still okay, that everything's going to be all right. And so the child, again, becomes acquainted with the idea that people can present consciously states that are at variance with the way they feel emotionally. And then we, can, we also develop in our peer relationships when we play with other kids. Kids can play aggressively, but we know internally they're still our friends. So in play, the child learns that okay, we're playing at being aggressive, but I'm not really angry with my friend and my friend's not really angry at me. And so kids love that because it allows them to act out two different states of being. The one thing, unfortunately, to bear in mind is that it's notoriously difficult to change the early life experiences that are encoded. Um, Mary Main did a bunch of research and she found that a child's attachment style, whether it's anxious, secure, or avoidant, there's a 75% likelihood in longitudinal studies that you will be that way for your entire life. So the good news is, is that you can change it, because 25% change it, but unfortunately of those 25%, actually 15% go worse, not better. <laughs> So there's still a, a possibility that you go to therapy, you wind up in a relationship with someone who's secure, you uh, surround yourself with a support group, you get a terrific therapist, uh, and you address these internal expectations. Because these early experiences not only determine how well you read other people's minds, but it also de determines who you look for love from and what you expect of other people. Those are what are all encapsulated in what's called internal working models, and they're all emotional structures that are very difficult to change because they're stored unconsciously. 
So suppose you realize from a set of relationships that at times you really struggle to understand the underlying intentions or emotions or uh, to read what's going on beneath the surface of people that are important to you. Well, you might go into then dialectical behavioral therapy. A lot of the work I do in Buddhist spiritual counseling is with this kind of thing. But you might go into, say, dialectical behavioral therapy and you might work with a therapist who would help you mentalize. And what that would look like is you would, one, identify the times in the therapy you felt triggered. You felt the therapist didn't like you. You felt the therapist was judging you. You felt the therapist was being cold and distant. The reason why you would look for all of these little um, uh, times is because in those times when we suddenly are fearful that somebody doesn't like us, is critical, is judging us, when there's an excellent chance they're not. Because there's actually, if you're in therapy with a good therapist, they'll never be judging you or disliking you. Their job is to be empathetic. But if you do feel that, it's because you're projecting early life experiences onto the therapist. That's called transference. And the role of a therapist is to help you see when you're projecting your past onto the present. And the therapist will then explain what they really felt internally versus what you thought they felt internally. And you will, over time, in the therapy, begin to be able to discern when you're being triggered by past life experiences of previous rejections or previous people who were uh, critical or unkind. You'll be able to discern when you feel suddenly unsafe that you'll be able to tell when that's actually based on a past experience and you'll be able to learn how to formulate the questions and the different tells, the different way to discern what somebody actually really feels. It's important to know that the right brain, when you're interacting with someone, nobody has control over it. For example, somebody can smile at you purposely when they're not happy. All they have to do is raise these, that corner of their mouth. That's controlled by the left brain, so it's volitional. But the corner of the, your eyes over here, you cannot lift if you want to. So when somebody's really happy, you can tell, because not only will they smile, but the corners of their eyes will go up. When somebody smiles from here down, but nothing changes here, they're not really happy. That's... If you want to see an example of that, look at any big poster in the subway of a news team on a news show, <laughs> a weatherman, anybody who's on TV. You will see that these people, if you look, the corner of their eyes never go up when they smile. That's just, you got that for free. I'm just giving you that one for free. <laughs> it's what's known as a tell. There's another tell. When somebody looks to, I think, the right, it means they're being controlled by the left hemisphere, and that means that they're more likely to be lying than if they look up to the left. But that's another thing that sometimes can be a tool. Sometimes if they're 
their hemispheres are switched, though, that might not be uh, a give, so you don't want to base too much on that. Okay, now we're going to talk about the skills you develop to, to be able to read people with a little bit more efficiency. One, it's useful to process early wounds in life. The, le the more you process previous experiences, what do I mean by process? Feel, hold the emotions, and talk about the feelings. Very often in early life and previous life, when we go through rejections, abandonments, when people are cruel, we cut off the feelings by distracting ourselves, by getting drunk, by going on, uh, by consuming food, doing something that will essentially cut off the emotions. When you cut off emotions, they don't go away. They remain as latent activations that are likely to be projected onto your present life. So if you don't want to project onto people old experiences, old abandonments, if you don't want to go into a new relationship expecting abandonment, it's, it's vital to process the previous emotional wounds. And that's generally done either with uh, a therapist or a support group. It can't do it alone. It's not possible to process latent emotional wounds and emotional beliefs in isolation. You need to talk about it. Two, practice observing closely the nonverbal signals that people are, are sending to you. All of their underlying emotional needs, beliefs, intentions are signaled by cues that are nonverbal. While, you're, while I'm talking to you, your left hemisphere is listening to my words, but your right hemisphere unconsciously is taking in my body language, my tone of voice, the, my ex facial expressions, and your right brain is crunching what Kahneman calls the fast heuristics, the circuits that are really fast, and it's coming up with a gestalt, a feeling that lets you know, okay, I sort of trust this person or I sort of don't. You're getting a sort of a visceral response. But if you want to aid that process, you don't just leave it to unconscious circuits. You split your attention between what someone's saying and what someone's doing. The more you look and ask yourself, okay, is this person's eyes never landing on me? Is this person always quickly fading out at certain topics? That's a tell. Is this, is this someone who's glossing over something? That's someone who's repressing issues they're frightened of. So you become very, very attentive and you listen very closely, not just to um, what people are saying, but how they are saying it. Interestingly enough, the major clinical process that determines people's attachment style, the adult attachment interview, they don't care so much what people say about their past, what they really focus on is where people leave out or trail off or get or cut off or jump topics or cannot finish a sentence. So that's what you pay attention to, the emotional cues that let you know. When somebody skips over something, it means that's what they're tense about, obviously. Um, that's why also never, ever, ever, ever do anything important by texting, okay? You have no 
nor do I have any ability to discern another person's true underlying emotional states, intentions, needs, fears, concerns on a text. You have no, even if they send you an emoji, <laughs> that emoji was, that's left brain emoji. That's somebody who is choosing what they want to feel like rather than the way they really feel. The only way to make an important, informed decision is to engage directly face-to-face -face with someone where you can read their, their nonverbal signals. Number three is collaborate with other people. Don't just interpret experiences on your own. When you come away, talk about with a friend what someone said and what you were feeling and anything else you noticed. True interpretation in life is collaborative. Human beings are not meant to process information in isolation. For the bulk of human history, we made every decision in collaboration with a group that we spent our entire life with. Each human being on their own is far too reactive. We're not capable of doing enough emotion regulation on our own. So if you want to come up with a reasoned, safe response, always check your interpretations with someone who you can trust. Someone who's, if you're talking about a relationship you're thinking of going into, talk with somebody who's been in a long-term relationship. If you're thinking of buying a house, talk with somebody who's done that. Somebody who's worked through the fears, who's worked through the issues, who can help you read and regulate the process. Finally, mindfulness is very central to the ability. The Buddha talked about mentalization in his way, reading other people's minds, in the context of mindfulness. Mindfulness means being aware of your ongoing internal emotional states. Don't just focus on your thoughts. Learn to dis discern the three areas that are controlled by the right brain, the midbrain, and the brainstem that are outside of your volitional control that betray your true underlying emotions, how you really feel about things. Your brainstem, which is concerned about your basic survival, speaks to you through your breathing. If you're breathing relaxed and long, it means your brainstem believes that your basic survival is okay. Your midbrain concerns about food, shelter, about uh, caregiving, about uh, accumulating things that will make life directly easier for you. And your midbrain will speak to you through gut feelings, what the Buddha called Vedana. And those gut feelings will be down the vagal nerve in the front of your body. Your belly will get tight if you're concerned about how connected you are to others or if you're anxious. Your chest will get hollow if you're feeling disconnected. Your throat will get tight if you're feeling that you have disempowered yourself. Your jaw will lock if you're anxious, as will your shoulders. So read the front of your body, the internal sensations. And then three... The right brain speaks to you through qualities of attention. Does your mind feel spacious and open, or does it feel contracted? Does your attention feel jumpy or settled? Does your 
mind feel like it's craving something or averse, wanting to get rid of something? Or is it in a state of dissociation where it's checking out? Or do you feel very, very calm and at ease? Being able to read those three things, the quality of your breath, the quality of your gut feelings, and the quality of your mood will help you learn to discern your own internal feelings, and you will be surprised. Virtually, I cannot tell you how many people I work with, and I work with so many people who do not know how to read how they feel. If you can read how you feel, you can also read how other people feel. And that will not only improve the quality of your life, it will improve the quality of your relationships. It's really worthwhile. So that's what we're going to do in our meditation. Thank you for listening. I hope something was of interest. So come for us to a seated upright position. Don't try to look like other people are sitting. You could be sitting next to somebody who's sitting in a way that's great for them and will give you a neck ache. What you do is just, you know, just close your eyes, allow your body to weave back and forward from side to side, around in a circle, and then allow your body naturally to come to a stop. And then take a moment, wriggle your ears a little bit, and then lift and lower your shoulders while you're wriggling your ears, and then squinch the buttocks. And then bring those three sensations in alignment. So the ears are above the shoulders and the shoulders are above the buttocks, the sit bones, and you should be in a really good seated position. And then gently, without any effort, slightly, ever so slightly, tilt your head back and up like you're looking at a very tall building, stretching the front of the neck a little bit. The more you're looking up, the less likely you are to slouch, and that is really the worst thing to do in a meditation, to allow your neck to slouch in front of your chest. So just have a sort of upward, tilted head, not too much, but just enough that you won't slouch. And So now we're going to really land in the present, and the way we're going to do that is we're going to Take a series of breaths that will systemically relax key areas of the body that talk to pre-conscious areas of the brain. So we'll take first a nice full in-breath through the nose, breathing in, and lift your shoulders up. Like you're really just suddenly hoisting your shoulders up. Hold them up, and then breathe out through your mouth. And just drop your shoulders so that, and if it feels right for you, gently pull your shoulders back to open up your chest. That really makes so much more room for the breath. And it actually, when people have an open chest, there's some research that shows that people feel more confident and less vulnerable. So for the second long in-breath, pulling the belly really tight. So you're like you're trying to lose two inches from around your waist. You're just holding it in really tight. And then breathe out and soften the belly. And just a really super relaxed belly. And try to breathe in through 
a really, really, really comfortable belly, soft, pliant. And then, finally, for the third in-breath, squinch the muscles in your face, clench the jaw, squinch the nose, tighten around the eyes, just make an ugly pinched face, and then breathe out, and just release the jaw, release, unfurrow the brow, and just really relax those micro-muscles around the eyes. And then take a moment to see if you can settle the eyes behind the eyelids. If the eyes are darting about, just request, ask them to, if they could settle down a bit. The more the eyes are settled behind the eyelids, the easier it is to settle the mind. So for the first part of this meditation, we are going to just develop samadhi, which is a a greater state of ease and tranquility. The way you do that is by keeping in mind an ongoing sensation that you're not creating. And just keep it in awareness. You don't have to push away thought. You don't have to push away any other sensation. Just make sure that your anchor, your anchor is the cessation you've chosen, is always in the forefront of attention. That's what the Buddha called ekagata, the mind focused on an object. So... There are several different objects or anchors you could choose. One would be the sounds floating up from the street below, the sounds of the room, sound of my voice, sound of any other event that has a sonic quality. So... It's important to try not to get lost in wondering what created the sound or visualizing what might have created, say, a siren or a honk or a shifting sound in the room. Just listen as if you're listening for the first time to a sound effect recording of a different environment and you're just listening without judging or visualizing. You're just listening to the sounds. And that's a wonderful meditation that keeps the mind very spacious. You could play little games like trying to hear the most distant sound to the left and then the most close sound on the left side and then the most distant sound on the right and so forth. You might slowly scan from sounds all the way to the left and then scan and pan awareness all the way to sounds happening all the way to the right and back and forward.
The second anchor could be just looking at the closed eye visuals behind your eyelids, not things you're imagining, just the lights that flicker when you close your eyelids. Very often there's a little internal light show. And just again be with what's ever happening in the present. You could be with sounds and lights. You could just simply pay attention to the sensations of your body breathing. So that's a very classic anchor. There's no right place to be aware of your body breathing. You could, for example, observe the breath in the belly or the breath moving from the belly up to the chest and back down to the belly and back up. You could feel the air entering and leaving the tip of the nose. You could feel the breath moving the shoulders. If you use the breath, it's very useful to count. So think one throughout the in-breath, two throughout the out-breath, and then pause as you pause between, then three in the next in-breath, four in the next out, pause. When you get to five, count down. So five on the in, four on the out. Or just think breathing in while breathing in, breathing out while breathing out, and think pause while you pause. That's the most important time of the breath to stay present when you're pausing, for it's the most likely that you'll drift away. So now we're going to go in silence for a while. And the most important thing to bear in mind is uh, to always respond with kindness, forgiveness, patience, and good humor when the mind drifts away. There's no room for frustration, impatience, self-judgment, or self-criticism. Just make this, or any meditation, a free zone where no self-criticism, no impatience, no self-judgment, no nothing negative is in terms of relating to your experience is permitted. You might feel sad or disappointed, that's okay, but don't respond to when you lose track of your anchor with any kind of self-punishment. Just feel good. You're meditating, it's good for you. Helps restore memory and attention circuits. It's healthy. It's for your well-being. So just guide your mind back very gently like it's a child that's wandered away from a picnic into a dangerous area of the park with a lot of love.
So this time you can allow whatever anchor you've been working with, sounds or breath or lights or whatever, to receive from the forefront of awareness. And I'd like you to bring to mind some issue or topic that's been on your mind quite a bit recently, an unresolved issue. For example, this could be something like whether to stay or leave a job, relationship, apartment, city. It could be whether to take an opportunity or to not. It could be any issue where there's two or more possible choices you could make. So bring to mind the issue, whatever it is, could be an image or just a single phrase, moving, relationship, work, family. And then ask yourself to really succinctly describe what your present thinking is about that topic, where you are so far. Thinking of staying, thinking of taking a break, thinking of calling it off, thinking of moving, thinking of staying put, thinking of disconnecting with a person or deepening a friendship. Whatever's on your mind, just know what the most recent thinking is. And then let's put that aside. And what I'd like you to do is keep the topic going. A very simple question. Should I X or should I Y? Should I stay at this job or leave this job? Should I deepen into this relationship or should I go slow or should I end it? Whatever. And then I want you to pay very close attention to how your right brain is signaling its concerns about this topic. So while you hold the topic in mind, you might think, okay, what do I feel about leaving this job? And then you might just repeat, leaving this job, leaving this job, and see how your body responds. Does your breath get slower and more relaxed? Or does your breath get anxious? Does the front of your belly get tight, indicating fear? Or does your chest get tight, indicating a concern about who you'll be connected with? And then you might run eventually the opposite possibility. Okay, staying at this job, staying in this relationship, and then see what your body feels then. How does your tension change? Does your attention become more relaxed? Or does it become even more jumpy? Does your body feel more at ease or more contracted? How do you know? 
what you're doing is you're developing an awareness of your own underlying emotional states. This is vital that you learn how to integrate both your left logical, methodical thinking with your emotional needs. Try to be as precise in your awareness as you can. Sometimes the signals of fear, excitement, dread, joy, sadness, longing, whatever, are very, very subtle. It can be a subtle tightening in the belly or a subtle shift in the quality of the breath suddenly the breath becomes more shallow. Be on the lookout for any subtle shifts. Again, all of the right brain's concerns are being signaled non-verbally through subtle shifts of your state of being. So at this point, just allow the topic to recede. This is 
just an example of an ongoing process that it would be worthwhile if we spent even five minutes every day just checking in with the embodied messages that we so constantly overlook in making important decisions, just knowing how to integrate both agendas of the mind, not allowing the left brain, which is always about accomplishment, accumulation, adventure, achieving, win out at the expense of the emotional needs for security, connection, support, love, we need to balance those. And the only way to balance those is to feel into the body and learn how to discern what's going on beneath the surface of our conscious awareness. So whenever you're ready, take a moment to just open your eyes enough to look at the ground in front of you. Integrating sight into this embodied awareness in such a way that it doesn't dominate. You just are as aware of your body as you are aware of the light and color streaming in. And see if you can maintain a mindful awareness for the rest of the evening where you're not only thinking and looking, you're also feeling. The more mindful you are, the more integrated you are. So that's actually a great, it's a great question about when we do feel... Um, that there's an embodied message of nervousness or worry or concern. That doesn't mean that we don't have to proceed, but that means there's an emotional association with this new possibility being associated with being vulnerable. You know, I'll give you an example. You might be a very talented pianist and have an opportunity to, somebody could say, hey, want to play in my group? But if in previous life, when you ever were creative in front of other kids when you were young, if people made fun of you, you would associate being creative around others with rejection. Mm -hmm. So even though this is a valuable opportunity to play in a band, right, mm -hmm. uh, you would feel nervous about it. Now, that doesn't mean we don't proceed. What it means is we... Uh, Inter we integrate this awareness that this new possibility is associated with past disappointments, rejections, times we were made to feel small or unloved or whatever. So we do it, we engage in this new possibility in a very titrated, <coughs> slow, incremental way that makes the inner child feel safe. Mm -hmm. So you, then you might sit with that feeling of vulnerability the next time you bring up the meditation, you just sit for five minutes, feel into that tightening, and then show with images, okay, would this make you feel safer if we did it slowly, if we did it with this person being present, if we, how can we do it in a way that would make this, the inner child in therapy is the, the embodied feelings that are associated with previous life experience. And so you show, you show the inner child different ways you can proceed and see what makes it more relaxed. You'll be surprised that things that can evoke a lot of fear, like moving or uh, switching a job or a career or going to school, at first can really tighten the belly. But 
if you say, okay, well, suppose I first just start by taking a couple of classes or I take only classes at first that I feel relatively confident in or I suppose I do this move, I move in with people I know, whatever, then you'll see the fear begin to dissipate. And so you can integrate both the left sort of uh, the the circuits of the brain that are opportunistic and are goal-seeking with the circuits of the brain that are concerned about our safety and our security. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you're, what you're asking is the how can we tell when we're projecting or transferring previous life unresolved emotions and how can we tell when we are uh, actually accurately mentalizing? Well, a couple of things. One, mentalizing is not fast. It's reflective. It requires taking time to integrate intuition, gut feelings, uh, with all the things you've seen and putting together the pieces to come up with an accurate appraisal. Projection is very, very fast. It's almost invariably emotional in the sense that it's projection is a unconsciously driven. Uh, it's not consciously decided. It's activated by previous emotional wounds. It's almost invariably uh, dysregulated in its degree. It's disproportionate in its response. It'll be a very strong, sudden feeling of, you know, this person's trying to get me. This person's, you know, there's no reflectiveness in it. If there's any doubt, the habit of collaboration almost invariably helps people discern the two. Having a friend that you can just go over and say, okay, I met with a realtor, <laughs> you know, uh, this is what they said, this is the feeling I had, I don't know if I'm feeling like this person isn't trustworthy or if, you know, this person is really being sincere. And you just describe what you feel, and as you describe what you felt, you'll find that the, uh, in collaboration, it's not just like your friend will come up and tell you, it was what, together, by externalizing and verbalizing your experience, you'll get the clarity you're looking for. You're very welcome. Somebody had a hand up? Over. Hi. Hey, so um, I guess my question was uh, what role do mirroring neurons play in it? And as I understand it, uh, there's variability and sensitivity of mirroring neurons, right? And so how does that play into it as well? Mirror neurons play, there's different theories about to the degree to which mirror neurons uh, play, the, how, how much of a role they play in mentalization. Mm -hmm. Some of the writings associated with Fanagi and who's the guy who came up with it uh, indicate that it plays a very big deal and others say no, it's, it's far more cognitive and uh, less based on... Basically what mirror neurons do is they create an internal feeling that mirrors an external situation. Mirror neurons were discovered when an Italian a uh, clinician noticed that when he picked to eat uh, a peanut, that the monkey that was sitting there with, uh, you know, wearing the hat that reads the spikes in different areas of the brain, 
the monkey's mesolimbic circuits acted up. The, the monkey suddenly became excited because it was identifying with the researchers eating the peanut. So when we have fully functioning mirror neurons, we begin to feel uh, what other people are feeling. It plays a very significant role in empathy. If you do not have functioning mirror neurons, it's very, very difficult. You can feel sympathy, which is cognitive, but you don't feel empathy, which is felt. To not have fully functioning parietal mirror neurons means it will be more challenging for someone to, to mentalize because you won't be able to feel internally what they're feeling internally, and you'll just react all the time to what they say and do rather than pick up on their underlying anxiety. For example, when you are with somebody who's anxious, even though they're really trying to present like they're confident, they will say, oh, everything's great. We got it all under control. Don't worry about it. But their foot will be tapping nervously, or they'll, they'll be, some eye will be twitching. And if your mirror neurons are functioning, you'll start to tap. You'll start to fidget in the same way. And then if you're attuned to your body, you'll know, wait, I'm starting to feel something's amiss. Therefore, I don't totally trust what this person's presenting.